Welcome to this special Best of ASCO Highlights audio program. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We asked nine clinical investigators to help us select the presentations and posters of greatest significance to medical oncologists in practice. And we begin with perhaps the paper of the meeting discussed by the principal investigator, Dr. Stephen O'Day, at a plenary talk in Chicago, and immediately thereafter, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on a phase three trial of ipilimumab, a novel antibody and immune stimulant that not only led to impressive efficacy findings, but also an unusual set of toxicities. Dr. O'Day describes the background to the study. Melanoma is obviously a disease that has been sort of associated with immune responses, but in the past, we've had very little in terms of the treatments have been very toxic, obviously like interleukin-2 and interferon, and they've only benefited a very small number of patients, and so and we haven't been able to predict who those patients are. But So what's exciting about this drug is I started working with it about seven, eight years ago. It was really an exciting development that I was able to be at the beginning of and help orchestrate through with a couple of my colleagues. So this is the first what we would call targeted T-cell antibodies. And the paradigm shift here is really we're really focusing not on the cancer per se, but the T-cell. And with these specific T-cell targets, now it's very clear there's lots of both accelerators and brakes to these T-cells. And this is the first in its class that is blocking the brake. But we have other T-cell antibodies that push the accelerator. And we're obviously going to be starting combinations of pushing the accelerator and blocking the brake at the same time. But... What's so exciting in melanoma as a prototype disease is that this single antibody by itself in people with widespread melanoma, that have obviously their immune systems have failed to a certain extent, has been able to be resurrected in about 30% of patients seem to have long-term benefits. So unlike other sort of very minimally incremental cancer therapies in recent years, this seems to really impact these patients not in weeks or months, but months or years. And so it's a great step forward for us. Can you talk about the actual implementation of the study, what the design was, eligibility, and then what the findings were? Yeah, so this was a large international phase three randomized study where there were three arms. One was the antibody by itself. The second arm was a combination of the antibody with a vaccine because there was preclinical and even early human data that the combination may be more effective. And then the control arm, so to speak, which is always difficult in metastatic melanoma since we don't really have any standard treatment that seems to impact survival, was the vaccine alone. And, you know, there was some concern about that. But if you look at it, this vaccine has been used by itself or in combinations with interleukin-2 and shown some benefits. So, the vaccine alone was the control arm. Now, the restrictions for the study were that you had to be HLA A2 positive as a tissue type because in order to benefit from the vaccine, you needed to be A2 positive. In terms of the IPI, Libamab, it was not a pre-requirement, but all patients in this trial were HLA2 positive. And the other important criteria was they had to have received prior treatment. So this was second line or greater treatment in metastatic melanoma where there's been no approved drugs. So those were the three arms. It was a large study, nearly 800 patients. And the benefit was clearly there in terms of both of the ipilimumab arms showed both a median survival benefit of approximately four months, which was about 67%. But even more importantly, the one-year and two-year survivals were nearly doubled. So there does appear to be long-term benefit tail of the curve in these patients. Can you talk a little bit about progression-free survival and response rate? 
So this class of drugs, we knew this from our early work with this drug, is that the objective response rate was quite low, only about 10%. However, there were another 20 30% of patients who either had prolonged stable disease or even progression followed by durable response. So we weren't expecting PFS or response to be dramatically different, quite frankly. The initial trial did look at best overall response as a primary endpoint. But when it became evident from a large phase two program that best overall response was not a good endpoint or surrogate, and that the drug seemed to be impacting a lot more people than just 10%, it was changed before it was unblinded to overall survival. So in terms of PFS and objective response, those were also superior in the two IPI arms compared to the vaccine arm. About 30% of the patients had disease control. About 10% had objective responses. Median PFS was not different between the arms. But if you look at overall PFS, the curves separate after three months. And then there was a PFS as well as a response, as well as a disease control, statistically significant benefit favoring the two IPI arms. So all of the endpoints, survival, PFS, response, were consistent and statistically improved. What was a little surprising is that the vaccine combination with the IPI did not seem to improve response, progression, or survival. And if anything, the combination was a little bit worse in terms of PFS and response, but it wasn't worse in terms of overall survival. I guess it's kind of hard for you know people on the outside to really get a feel for how this drug, you know, was benefiting people. I mean, you see the statistics, but were there individual patients that you've taken care of or who you knew about in the study where you could really look at and say, wow, that person must have benefited? Oh, absolutely. I think that's really the key part of this. In terms of the melanoma offices across the country in centers that do a lot of melanoma, the waiting room is getting much larger. And it's not necessarily because we're seeing a lot of new patients. It's just that people are surviving. So the tail of the curve, that 20, 25% of patients seem to be living with their cancer well into years. And the median follow-up was about two years, but there was follow-up between four and a half years. And we already have patients because of the earlier studies out seven or eight years with this drug. So I hate to use a word cure, but clearly there's long-term survival in 20, 25% of patients who had widespread these were poor prognosis patients right from the get-go. So this is a big move forward in that sense. But presumably because of the fact that there were very few responses, these people still have tumors sitting there that you see. Yeah. You know, I'm a tough critic in melanoma in general, but the reason I'm excited and I think they should be is that there's a number of patients whose tumors just stop growing and they don't develop new sites of disease. And the other big factor with this disease in particular, melanoma, brain metastasis, some of the other abstracts, my colleagues at the meeting presented data with this drug in brain metastasis primary treatment, and there's clearly a subgroup of patients who seem to have benefits. So I think the reason why there's long-term survival is that patients are not developing new sites of disease systemically, but they're also not developing new sites of brain metastasis. And we have data now that even in small untreated brain metastasis, there's a certain percent of patients who tumor will resolve. So I think that's the major hurdle in melanoma is we've had some successful systemic therapies in the past at great toxicity, but we haven't been able to prevent early brain mets, which sort of nullifies the effect. But with this drug, I think there's a real CNS benefit as well as a systemic benefit. It tends to be in the same patients. So that leads to that 20-25%. You know, that may very well be cured in terms of cure in the sense of not needing retreatment. 
I want to ask you about that brain mat paper, but first, let's talk a little bit about side effects and toxicity. You know, you showed the data, and maybe you can comment on the data, but also in your presentation, you kind of alluded to the fact that this is not necessarily that easy to do, and it seems like a very different spectrum of toxicity that we're used to. Can you talk about it? Absolutely. So this is a very powerful drug. What we're actually doing in a subgroup of patients, and it tends to be the patients who are actually benefiting, is breaking immune peripheral tolerance and producing autoimmunity, or as we say, immune-related side effects. So obviously, that's a very powerful system if an antibody can actually cause autoimmune attack on normal tissues. So it is playing a little bit with fire, but I think that it's a frame shift for medical oncologists because obviously these are very different toxicities than antiangiogenesis drugs or targeted drugs or chemo drugs. This is an immune side effect. The vast majority of these side effects are reversible. They're grade one or two, and they actually don't require any steroids, but about 10 to 15% of them, and primarily the most important organ site is the colon and colitis, but these 10 to 15% develop grade three, four toxicities that require rapid high-dose steroids. But I think the fascinating thing is those steroids tend to work well over a four to six-week taper and it's almost immediate, the response. And the fascinating concept is that even those patients who require heavy immunosuppression, that doesn't abrogate the anti-tumor response, which was our major concern early on. We were withholding steroids from these patients with severe colitis, thinking that because they're responding and we didn't want to nullify it, that's where we saw some perforations and deaths. Again, small percentage, but it was real. And I think now that we're more comfortable that adding steroids early to that subgroup that really has side effects, it does not seem to affect the anti-tumor response. I think we're much more readily using them. And correspondingly, the safety has been better. So colon is the major concern. Much less frequently, autoimmune hepatitis or pituitary issues. And there have been a few deaths from the liver autoimmune hepatitis. But overall, I think we do have to get medical oncologists ramped up to what the spectrum is. But I have no issues that medical oncologists, once they refocus and get up to speed quickly, will safely be able to give this drug. And we have to weigh that against, obviously, the nearly 100% death rate from this disease in 6 to 12 months. So, Yeah, when I saw your slide with endocrine effects, I was trying to think, what was that? Now, pituitary? What happens? Yeah, it's predominantly central pituitary swelling from presumably T-cell infiltration, although we haven't biopsied pituitaries, but if it's consistent with the other sites. And these patients usually develop uh, fairly profound fatigue and frontal headaches and occasionally diplopia from the pituitary swelling. And it can be, it's a central problem, obviously. So their TSH and ACTH are low, and it can also affect testosterone in men and obviously other hormones in women. So it's pretty profound. It happens in the first 12 weeks generally. It's under 10%, but when it happens, they need pretty quick steroids. And some of these patients may need lifelong cortisol replacement and thyroid replacement and even testosterone. The most common side effect slash toxicity that you mentioned in your presentation was dermatologic. Was that sort of a lupus kind of thing or what was it? No. So about 50% of patients get skin changes. They tend to be like a migratory macular papular rash with pruritus and sometimes no rash and just pruritus, but it tends to be migratory. We usually use some topical steroid creams for symptomatic areas. 
So that's about 50%. The colon is about 30%, although only about 10% of these are severe. And then the liver and the pituitary are less than 10%. So 50, 30, 10, 10. So I want to ask you about sort of where things are heading in terms of new trials with this strategy. But first, if this agent were available, and you got to think that with these kinds of data, hopefully it will be available, where would you see using it right now outside a protocol setting? Well, certainly it would be used in pre-treated patients for metastatic, so second line or greater. The truth is, given the lack of first-line treatment that has really impacted survival in this disease, it will likely be used in first-line. And I would certainly endorse that, given that there's plenty of phase two data now that first-line, if anything, the data looks even better. In terms of adjuvant therapy, I wouldn't go that far, though. Obviously, this is a powerful drug. There can be treatment-related deaths. In a curative adjuvant setting, I think we have to be a little more cautious, especially with some recent data with other angiogenesis drugs where their success in stage four does not necessarily predict for success in stage three. But we have an ongoing randomized worldwide placebo-controlled trial for stage three melanoma with this drug versus placebo. So we need to complete that study and get the results. But I think it likely will be used fairly consistently at multiple lines for stage four disease based on this data. What other trials are being done with this agent and what kinds of trials are being discussed? So I think the burning question that was alluded to with Vern Sondak, Dr. Sondak, at the discussion at the plenary session is the dose that we used in this study was three milligrams every four weeks for four doses. This was an early study in the evolution of the drug. And we now know based on a dose escalation study that 10 milligrams may be more effective And we also know that possibly using maintenance doses, the people in this trial only got the four doses. They were allowed to get retreated down the road if they benefited and then relapsed. But that was only 40 patients out of a very small subgroup. So this, the data that I presented is really with three milligrams without much reinduction and just four doses, which is all the more impressive, I think. But I think very quickly, the pivotal study that has been done first line, phase three study with DTIC, which we don't have the results yet to, is at the 10 milligram dose. And there is maintenance dosing every three months. So those need to be ferreted out a little bit. And then hopefully once the dose and schedule gets more defined to optimize it, obviously combinations are going to be very important. And we're already in discussions with the BRAF drugs and other combinations that should be very exciting in the near future, as well as other T-cell targeted antibodies that I talked about at the beginning that are pushing the accelerator and blocking the brake. So there will also just be combinations of these T-cell antibodies. So is there a way, compassionate use or otherwise, to access the drug right now? And what's happening in terms of the FDA? Yeah. So there's about 55 centers in the U.S. right now. All are experienced centers with the drug, which I think was a prerequisite from BMS. And so those compassionate studies are open. And the drug supply doesn't seem to be an issue at this point with BMS. Patients will have to get to one of those centers of excellence that have experience with the drug, But as I said, there's about 55 of those in the U.S. today. In terms of the timeline for the drug, obviously the goal, I think, again, I don't work for the company and don't have uh, firsthand knowledge of all the details, but the plan is certainly to go forward. Hopefully by the end of the year, they'll have something to present to the FDA, and we're hopeful maybe the first or second quarter of 2011 we could get approval. Now, there are a couple other related papers. I was curious what your thoughts were. One, you mentioned the one by Donald Lawrence, abstract 8523, 
which was a phase two study of this agent, ipilimumab, in patients with brain meds. Can you talk about basically what they looked at there and what they saw? Yeah, so this was two cohorts to that study. One were people that had small brain meds that did not require steroids, and then a second cohort that actually had enough symptomatic disease that they actually required steroids. And it was very reassuring to see, again, not large percentage of patients, just like with the systemic treatment of the cancer. Not everyone is responding, but there was a cohort of patients that clearly had durable brain responses. And even in the setting of steroids, which you might think might nullify it, there were objective brain responses. So this is very encouraging and sort of supports our clinical impressions that this drug has some activity in the brain. There were no new side effects that came out of this study. And it's certainly not a home run, but I think it has important implications for why this drug may be working as well as it is in the group of patients that it benefits. So that was reassuring. And then the third trial with this drug that was reported was my colleague Steve Hody at Dana-Farber, where it was really a subpopulation of the overall main study that I reported at the plenary, where 40 patients were reinduced after having benefited from the drug and then relapse. I think what's important about that paper is the first message is not many people that benefit from four doses actually relapse, which is a wonderful thing. It's a small group, but they didn't require reinduction. But the 40 patients who did, almost two-thirds of them had a second durable response. So that's very reassuring in the few that do relapse late that we might even be able to salvage them. So that was important data to go along with the frontline plenary data that was discussed. The other key presentation I wanted your thoughts on was about the new BRAF inhibitor. Last year, we saw a similar, really interesting paper about a similar agent that was presented by Keith Flaherty. Can you talk about this new agent? So a few years ago, scientists really identified BRAF mutations as a common abnormality in certainly cutaneous melanomas. About 50 to 60% of them will have this mutated BRAF gene. And obviously, there was a rapid pharmaceutical response in terms of getting some BRAF inhibitors into the clinical research arena. The first drug, Dr. Chapman and Dr. Flaherty presented data last year at ASCO showing a dramatic response rate, which was quite quick. Within the first two to three weeks, almost 70, 80% of patients having either objective responses or stable disease. And there was a huge splash, obviously, about it. Very exciting. It's still exciting. However, with longer follow-up on some of these patients, it looks like the median response duration uh, appears to be six to nine months, which in metastatic melanoma is still a step forward. But there has been some concern that these drugs, that resistance will develop and that the sort of recurrences that develop are fairly explosive and that can be very dramatic. And the brain seems to be a site of recurrence. So it doesn't at least appear to be having a huge impact in the brain. So there's been some caution more recently about this class of drugs. And they're in a pivotal frontline trial with this drug versus DTIC as first-line treatment for metastatic melanoma. But the abstract you referred to then is a very similar oral BRAF inhibitor. And we've been involved with the development of this drug. And it's a very selective inhibitor. And it was reassuring to see, based on the phase one, two data that was presented by Dr. Kefford from Australia, that there's also a dramatic response with this drug in the 60-70% period with comparable side effects. So it appears now we have two very selective BRAF drugs that are racing to try to get regulatory approval. Certainly the side effect profile with this class of drugs has been 
reasonably benign, some rash and some fatigue and some joint pain, certainly not the hand-foot or GI toxicity of the EGRF receptor inhibitors, but there have been some squamous cell carcinomas of the skin that have developed, and obviously those are fairly non-life-threatening given what these patients are up against, but I think we are monitoring them very carefully for their skin. And it may be that by blocking the BRAF pathway, the MAP kinase pathway, with these drugs, we may be accelerating other pathways. And MEK is one hypothesis regarding this that may actually accelerate some of the squamous cell cancer-type pathways that are more dependent on those. So overall, they're well-tolerated. They can be given chronically. Obviously, there's a slightly different side effect profile with the squamous cell cancers, and we'll need to monitor that. 